This is CliffCentral.com. Please note that the views expressed and the advice provided in this show are for general advice and entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated should be treated as a substitute for your own independent legal advice based on your own specific facts and objectives. Therefore, the presenter and CliffCentral.com accept no liability of any nature whatsoever, either expressed or implied. Law. Like you've never heard it before. The Laws of Life. With Gary Hertzberg on CliffCentral.com. I'm Gary Hertzberg and this is The Laws of Life on CliffCentral.com. Alongside me today, Lionel Makokotlela. Welcome, Lions. Dumela, Gary, and Dumela to our podcasters and everybody who's listening to us this morning, our afternoon. Today's show is about police assault and brutality and wrongful and unlawful arrest and detention. You? With us in studio to discuss police misconduct and abuse are specialist attorneys on the subject, Tim Flock, Jean-Ray Pearton, and candidate attorney Anne Nzirabira. I may get it wrong, correct me <laughs> later. They're all from the uh, lawyer's attorney's firm, Hildenhase Malachi. They're based in Pretoria and Santon. They have extensive experience in taking up claims against the police. Now, one of the claims they successfully handled against the police was on behalf of a man, listen to this one, who was arrested and assaulted for not wearing a shirt in public. <laughs> and the question is, why wasn't he? Oh, my shirt. Too sexy for my shirt. So sexy. Yeah. I'm too question sexy is why for sexy. your party. <laughs> Well, there we go, Lions. I think he was too sexy for his shirt. Uh, he must have been scared shirtless after that one. What can I say? That's I'm Too Sexy by British group Right Said Fred. Uh, older listeners may remember that one. It's from the early 90s. It reached number one in the USA. The syrupy I Do It For You by Brian Adams, which is not my favorite, held this one back from being number one in the UK. Wow. There you go. Now, before Lionel takes off his shirt, let's give it our contact details. Our Facebook page, The Laws of Life with Gary Hertzberg. And Lionel, do you want to give out our Twitter handle? Our Twitter handle is at Hertzlaw, H-E-R-T-Z-L-A-W. You should know that by now. H-E-R-T-Z-L-A-W is our Twitter handle. Uh, have a look at our Facebook page if you don't mind and give us a like. We're going to uh, be taking your questions during the show. The questions come up from our collaborative partner, Legal Talk South Africa, and they are right now one of the biggest Facebook groups in South Africa. Amazing. Amazing, Grace. Amazing indeed. We have a compliment from two great uh, listeners of ours. It's Kerry Duran and Inga Wursthaisen. They're in Umschlanga. And they said they don't miss one of our shows. They download each one onto the app on their phone and they listen in their cars. They love it. Oh, no, thank you, you guys. Nice to hear, isn't it? Yeah, it's brilliant. Kerry Duran and Ingo Rostez, and we've doubled our listenership lines. Now we're growing <laughs> nationally. Welcome to our attorneys here in studio. Uh, Tim's leading the, the group, Tim Flock. And uh, you, Tim, I know you handled your, you represented the guy who was arrested and assaulted for not wearing a shirt in public. The question is, was he too sexy for his shirt? Tell us a bit about that case. What went on there? Well, uh, firstly, um, thank you very much for having us on the show and uh, to you and your listeners. Um, I guess it, uh, it would depend on uh, if you asked him how he felt at that point in time. Yeah. But um, and the, the long and the short of the, the whole story was that he'd gone out um, with a couple of friends. And it was a very hot summer's night in uh, the Limpopo province. And, you know, he wanted to go in and get himself a cool drink at a garage store. And um, him and his, his friend, as they pulled up there, uh, he got out and um, he actually noticed a, a bunch of drug dealers at the, the garage store itself. And he got upset. You know, he wanted to, to take them on. And um, so he was making a little bit of a, a racket. And um, be, the, be it as it may, uh, the, the manager took a little bit of exception, phoned the police. As they arrived on the scene, they said to him, why are you not wearing a shirt? <laughs> and he said, well, you know, it's it's about 36 degrees. So, um, you know, it's a little bit on, on the hot side of things. And uh, a little bit of an argument ensued. And uh, 
yeah, they they got a bit hot under the collar, pardon the pun, but um, <laughs> yeah, things uh, escalated, and uh, he was a uh, he was assaulted, and um, ultimately arrested and detained for not wearing a shirt in public. The question is, Tim, when is it acceptable for a man to go topless? I mean, if I walk around <laughs> Santon City shopping mall, can I take my shirt off? Well, you know, by by the same not about me, but uh, somebody who's <laughs> got the right to, yeah. By the same argument, you know, you could say that all the people at the beach should be arrested because none of them are wearing, you know, shirts. Yeah, but that's a, um, that's expected. Yes. Is uh, it expected? I mean, how would how would the average person feel if they in one of those little what are they? What do you call them? Speedo. Uh, no, no, in the um, in the at the garage they have these little cafes or whatever they call the shops, and uh, the public walks in all the time without shirts. Uh, would that not offend anyone? Not in, not in terms of our law in any case. Um, you are allowed to walk in public without a shirt. It would probably be frowned upon by and large. I mean, you know, the, there's what the law says, and then there's probably what you would have your, uh, you, know, you know, your moral obligation towards the public. But, mm. um, you know, from a legal point of view, there's, there's certainly nothing that prevents you from, from doing that. Tim, I saw something interesting. There was a man who stood naked on Trafalgar Square, the plinth there, and uh, he was not, according to their law in the UK, he was not breaking the law. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's not an offence to be naked in public in England and Wales, but it becomes an offence when you intend to upset and shock someone. So what? What the, I think the way the law reads in both their their law, country and ours, if you um, outraging someone's sense of decency. It could well be. I mean, they've got to. They've got to come to court, the complainant, and show how it offended them. Yes. And whether the na- man's naked top is offensive to them, um, I guess in certain circumstances it could be offensive. It can. I mean, it it depends on you know by not in South African law on uh, you know the the values of the community. Yeah. So you know you've just described the difference um, overseas, and I think in South Africa there's there's a little bit more. Um, conservativeness insofar as that specific aspect is concerned Um, and hence you know we follow um, a system that rather tries to implement a you know a scenario where you don't have that openness to appear naked in public Um, it's it's just basically set in in our law um, for for quite some time I guess that the owner of the establishment any establishment has the right uh, to turn people away and you could say, if you don't put your shirt on, get out of here. That's his right, isn't it? That's correct. You can definitely do that. Yeah. So uh, there, the person without the shirt has got no right to say, I insist on, on being here, because it's obvious there's a uh, right reserved to the owner of the establishment. The, the, the person was arrested, this very guy who didn't have a shirt, and uh, he was assaulted as well, or just uh, what, what, what did they do to him? The, the irony of the situation was that um, they told him to put his shirt back on, which he then did, yeah. and they then subsequently proceeded to to assault him after he put his <laughs> shirt on. <laughs> so um, he didn't look so menacing with his shirt on, yeah. Well, it, it got torn off again in any event, so he yeah. would have probably had to be arrested twice for not wearing a shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so they, what did they drag him, put, shove him into a police vehicle and drag him to the they, police station? They wanted to force him into, into the police van and he couldn't understand, you know, why he's being arrested for not wearing a shirt and obviously complying with um, with their request that, you know, he put one back on. And he was then, you know, fully within his right to resist um, such an arrest. And ultimately there, there was a scuffle that ensued and a number of officers were involved um, and he got dragged a little bit on the ground, you know, mm. and then obviously bumped the, bumped around a little bit in the police van as well. He was then detained in the police cells. Yes, that's correct. Uh, when we talk police cells, are we talking? Was he on his own, or was he with other dangerous? People? He was. He was with um, quite a number of other um, prisoners. Whether or not they were, were dangerous um, is another topic. Um, mm. But what's interesting well, by is by its nature to be locked up with people who are there for maybe hijacking or robbery or That's rape correct. or anything is the last thing any of us want to, God forbid, be in. Yes. Yeah. No, well, what, what's interesting is that he, um, he said that he, he purchased cigarettes for the, the guys who were in the cells and 
because of that, they subsequently left him alone. Uh, Whether or not that's true is another story. I, I, I would be inclined to believe <laughs> it was true. Right? Give me smoke, so I ask. Uh, oh, no, true. Th- uh, that's the case. That's how you we'll actually negotiate you your way around uh, prison. You've got to have a bit of something to offer. How long did he spend there, Tim? So he spent about uh, 15 hours from the, date of, from the time of his arrest until he was uh, released. Do some of these people explain the conditions of these police cells to you? I know you do a yes. lot of it. And you want to tell us what they what they report to you? I mean, is this in, across the board, or is it only in certain police cells, or what, what is the general um, report? I haven't that? sat in on many of the consultations, but I do read many of the consultation notes after the fact. And um, from what I know, it would be the standard conditions that you would expect in, in, in an environment such as that. Cold, um, blankets aren't provided. Um, obviously, if you're there for an extended period of time, food then becomes an issue. Yeah. Um, the size of the cells is often an issue as well. And how many prisoners or inmates, if you will, are in that cell and, uh, yeah... Jean-Ray, do you know uh, any reports on these things? Yeah, I've gotten a, a couple of shocking accounts of the the conditions there in the police cells. Um, yeah, so luckily um, we can say that as it is on this show. I mean, mm. there's, they write on the walls with the only material they have available to them. Mm. <laughs> and uh, it's very unsettling to most of our clients who are law-abiding citizens by nature mm. and who shouldn't be in those cells And it causes them a great deal of distress because when one looks at the period of detainment that they are detained, uh, they do need to eat, obviously, Mm. and they do need water. And when when those are provided, they are provided in the front part of the cell. And the prisoners who are there the longest just grab it. And most of the time you would find that your client would come to you and say to you, listen, I haven't eaten for three days. I haven't had water for three days. And the it's compounded by how Anne correctly stated that you don't have a blanket. You don't have a mattress. You're lying on a cold floor. Most of our clients also need medical attention Mm. because they were assaulted and they were treated badly. And... I mean, I understand and I, and I feel for my clients when they come to us with these stories and they explain to us it's just a, uh, the cumulative effect of all the conditions uh, makes it bad. Any guy who's detained is entitled to be compensated for the, for the damage he suffers to his well-being, to his emotional well-being, to everything. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's frightening <coughs> to be in those conditions, isn't yes, it? Yes, that's, that's 100% correct. And... and What's unfortunate for the the minister, who's the the person who, in the actual fact, pays the the amount of damages, he needs to take his victim as he finds him. Mm-hmm. If it's a sensitive person that's detained and they have a, a psychological breakdown that causes a lesion that affects them in their everyday life, I mean, they're entitled to be compensated for that in the end. Good point. Yeah, yeah. and to add on just to what Johnny was saying in terms of most of the people who are detained do require medical treatment. The other day we were dealing with um, a case where one of our clients had been shot in the nuts and he had been detained without seeing any any doctor up until his release and he was detained for about four to five days. Obviously, mm. we argued mm. for the maximum compensation. Yeah. Yeah. You went nuts on that one, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but, Gary, I just want to find out, how yeah. do you quantify... Uh, the amount of this uh, We're going to come to that oh, okay. mm. We're going to come And it's a very good question I just want to deal With the shirtless guy He, <laughs> he You uh, are so obsessed With so the shirtless Well it's, it, it, I'll tell you why Because it's got Some kind of uh, Happy ending or so The police then Wanted to prosecute Or they didn't prosecute Or what went on With this case So after he was released, um, after the 15 hours of uh, his detention, he was then given a a warning to appear in court, um, and he subsequently appeared on no less than four occasions. This was for further investigations and for representations to be made to the um, state prosecutor. Mm. Um, Now, these representations were to the effect that you know, he hadn't committed an offense and that there was no prospect of actually pursuing a prosecution against him. Uh, so, th- so they actually threw in the towel, the police and the National Prosecuting Authority. So just to, to, to be clear on this point, yeah. the police I- are responsible for your first appearance at court. Yeah. Um, thereafter, 
if the prosecutor insists on a postponement, they are then the responsible entity. So what happened was that the prosecutor, after receiving the representations, decided to withdraw the um, the case against um, Mr. Van Mm, he's the shirtless guy. That's the shirtless okay, guy. I have the letter from the National Prosecution Service in which they say, take notice, this office has considered your representations, that's the attorney's representations, after perusing the case docket, it's been established that there was no offense on which the accused could have been arrested. Mm. And uh, therefore, it says it can be concluded that he was ev- evading an unlawful arrest. I don't know what that means. But the fact is... They say they decided that the case would be withdrawn at court, mm. and yes. and and nothing ever happened. That was the end of that. Yes. Wow. Your client then says, "Hold on a second. You're not going to get away that lightly. You've punished me. You hurt me. You locked me up. You assaulted me. I want to sue you," and that's what he did, through you people. That's correct. Cool. Let's talk about this offence happened. Uh, do you remember the dates really? Um, when did it happen that he was arrested? I believe it was in October 2015, mm. November 2015, so I could be mistaken. You then sued the Minister of Police and National Prosecuting Authority. That's you right. sued both of them? Yes. Do you remember how much you sued for? Um, you know, just just before I go into that, you know, yeah. it's always it's always a rough estimate at the point uh, that we issue summons. Mm. Um it's, I think it's important for the listeners to know that because we often have, um, you know, clients saying, well, you issued summons for a million rand, but I only ended up getting a hundred thousand. Yes. Um, so, you know, it's just to get the, the legal proceedings really underway and, and, um, get the matter going, so to speak, because they do take a long time. Absolutely. So I yeah. know that, um, for, for example, in this, in this case, I think we claimed for, Four, five hundred thousand. Well, you broke it down under three headings. The first was you claimed claim one, unlawful arrest and detention. Mm. Your second claim was for. Uh, let me just have a look. Uh, you claimed one hundred and fifty thousand for that. And then you claimed assault. Your claim two, and you claimed for medical expenses and all kinds of things, general damages for pain and suffering, and the total claim there I think came to uh, one hundred and fifty thousand or something. Uh, and then you claimed another, uh, for malicious prosecution, you claimed a similar amount. And uh, the matter, did it go to court or was it settled before it went to court? It went the, you know, the full distance mm-hmm. um, insofar as we had to issue summons. They, the state attorney who was representing the Minister of Police and the National Director of Public Prosecutions um, defended the case. They filed a plea we had a pre-trial. We went through the whole discovery process. And, um, you know, we had to, on the day of trial, was when they actually came and conceded that they were liable. Okay, so what they do is they run this thing all the way, from the beginning all the way to trial. So what, what in effect is happening is that the legal costs are going sky high. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the question to you, Jean-Ré, is why do they run it? I mean, they, they, they withdrew this case. Right up front. Why didn't they sit around a table with you say, guys, let's talk settlement. You want X, we'll, let's talk. And avoid all the legal fees that you and I are paying for when, we pay, when the state attorney is defending this. Yes, in a, in a perfect world, Gary, that would be the ideal to settle matters early and out of court to, to cut the legal costs. But unfortunately, we are dealing with, with a number of, of role players, uh, You've mentioned the state attorney correctly, who's the the lawyer for the state. Um, Then you are dealing with the minister of police and the national director of public prosecutions who all need to give instructions and where there are legal advisors who have to consider the matters. But as as we have experienced, the state attorneys have an immense caseload. I mean, each state attorney, if, if, if my, uh, information from dealing with them is correct. They have about 700 to 800 files each. And this is not files limited to Mm. unlawful arrest and detention. This is everything from land claims to straight through to, uh, the, the matter where we were involved, uh, in the constitutional court for, for the, um, the Sasa case, they are extremely busy and they, they simply do not have the time 
to afford the matter the proper attention. And unfortunately, we have to protect our clients' rights and mm. drive the matter to court because, mm. as you guys have correctly stated, that's usually where they settle or decide to run the trial in the end. Let me ask you guys this question. If you sue the state, the Minister of Justice, whoever it may be, the Minister mm. of Police, whoever, can they only use a state attorney or can they use outside attorneys? Do you know the answer to that? It it depends on, on the matter and it also mm. depends on the quantum of the matter. Yeah. If it's a really, really big case, uh, I have seen where there are re- a really big police assault cases where a person, for instance, gets shot in the stomach and uh, he needs severe uh, medical attention to mm. to and corrective surgery to mm. correct correct uh, everything that went wrong afterwards uh, then they farm it out to to attorneys that are on their panel mm. but these run-of-the-mill cases usually don't go to other attorneys because they are supposed to be handled by the state attorney does the state attorney charge a fee to the minister or does he work on a salary and He's, no, yeah, he works on a sta- salary mm. and he gets a state pension. So there's no fees that uh, the, the minister pays. That's why he wants to use the state attorney. That's mm. correct. That's what correct. is in effect happening is that the matter is running all the way to trial and your fees are running up all the time. And you guys, we all expensive, us lawyers. Therefore, the state, when they concede at the day of the trial, they have to pay all your legal fees. And that's mm. running into tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. Yeah. Wow. That's correct. And that's what we as the public are paying. It's our tax money. <laughs> yes. It's made, I mean, if the state is that busy, it may pay them to farm out these matters as well and get outside lawyers to try and resolve them quickly. Well, Gary, yeah. just on that, I know that, for example, in the, the Eastern Cape, they the state attorney has now just recently, with regards to medical negligence matters against the MEC of Health, mm. they've started to outsource those matters to um, to private law firms, you know, to assist them and obviously also to investigate um, whether or not there are legitimate claims or, or not. Tim, you sent me an article which I really enjoyed looking at. It says that the state attorneys are drowning that's the word under massive workload was this a sunday times article or i'm not sure where it came from it was uh, the legal brief um yeah it was from sorry it was from the sunday times and we obviously got it in, in yeah the state attorneys are drowning in workload of hundreds of cases as you rightly say according to 2016 public service commission report the working conditions and they this was about kzn in in kwazulu natal and that's mirrored in the rest of South Africa. Experts say that, and these are the figures, these state attorneys um, sometimes reach 2,487. What's this? Experts say that to reach an acceptable standard for the caseload of state attorneys, 2,487 attorneys would be needed. Mm-hmm. So they need 2,500 2, state attorneys in KwaZulu-Natal at certain times to handle 248,000 files. Mm. In fairness to them, yes. okay, mm. and uh, how many have they got? Like three hundred. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, can you work this one out? It's crazy. There are a lot of lawyers in South Africa in private practice that are struggling. <coughs> Recently admitted attorneys, young lawyers, not big firms like Hildenes Malachi, but <laughs> there are young lawyers out there that need work, and I don't know why they don't use these guys um, to to help. It should be, rather than ru- allow these matters to run all the way to trial, I'm making a noise here, but I think, uh, <laughs> I hope it gets to someone's ears. I'm sure they know about it. Uh, maybe the Law Society should try and push this one as well. I, I really feel strongly about this. I mm. know we do, uh, we've been doing a lot of radio shows with the Attorney's Fidelity Fund. There are lawyers that unfortunately have been dipping into clients' money and running away with their clients' money. Mm. And it often comes from struggle. They just, you know, they, they think... Uh, they'll they'll dip their hands in and they'll pay it back next month, but they can't next month, mm-hmm. and it's because they're sickling. Yeah. So there you go, guys. It's just a thought. Okay, we have uh, a number of questions that have come from our legal collaborative partner, and I just want to pull them up and I'm going to fire them at you guys, and you can <coughs> answer them in whatever way you want. I just got to find them. Lines before we get there, you okay? I'm very much Good. okay. Um, <laughs> Here comes Debbie. She says, I need to report an assault by a police officer. Any suggestions? She says, when I went to the police station to open a docket, uh, they told me that the person I want to open the docket against was above them in rank. And they laughed when I said I want to open a docket against someone. 
Um, Bernard is someone who replied to that. He said, go to the charge office, lay a complaint, insist on waiting for your crime register number, insist on getting the SAP legal department contact details. They can't refuse to open a docket. If they try and say they won't, uh, please report it to the IPID. Now, there's a number of questions in there. First of all, what's it like when you go to the police station to report a charge? Genre? Uh, Gary, yeah, thank you for that. Uh, that's a very good question from the listener. Um, well, that sounds to me like a bit of police politics there, saying that uh, the officer who you want to report an assault against is of a higher rank and therefore you are refusing to report it. Um, yeah, that's a bit laughable. They should always, always, when there's any assault, whether it's an assault by a police officer or a normal civil assault by a uh, resident of of our country or non-resident, uh, mm-hmm. they should give you a J eighty eight form, and mm-hmm. they should take down your details, and they should take down your statement, and they should open a docket. Obviously, that's in a perfect world. Um, I read those comments as well. I'm I'm quite <coughs> impressed about the amount of knowledge that comes out there. The pr- procedure they suggest to follow is correct. They they would like you to, if the charge office refuses, they would like you to see the, make an appointment and see the station commander. And if that fails, they would like you to make an appointment with the cluster commander. Those uh, hierarchies, etc., are, are all well and good. Uh, but it depends on what you aim to achieve with reporting the assault. Um, you may follow that procedure, and you've mentioned IPED as well. Sorry, IPED, before you get to IPED, aren't I obliged, if I've been wrongfully arrested or detained or assaulted, whatever, I have to go immediately to the police station and report it, lest they should suggest that I didn't report it so it didn't happen? Mm. Yes, well, you would have to report it as yeah. quickly as possible. And if the charge office won't assist me, then I do go to the station commander or the cluster commander. Is that what that's, you suggest? That's correct. I would always suggest that to protect yourself and to be able to prove it in the end. The key part of of the, the uh, procedure would be to obtain that J88 form and to have a doctor assess you and to note the injuries on that J88 form. Is that uh, doctor the state's doctor? It can be any doctor. Usually yeah. they suggest one, Yes. but you can go to any doctor of your if choice. I cannot, if I cannot afford a doctor, does the, does the policeman have to send me to the district surgeon, or how does it work? Yes, they, they will send you to a provincial hospital okay. here in Pretoria, yeah. if you are assaulted in Pretoria. There are many. Yeah. Uh, you can do it at any of the clinics. We, we have a wonderful um, health system Everywhere where you can go from a community clinic to a community health center to a provincial or a district hospital. Okay, so get your medical report as soon as possible. Everyone's mm-hmm. nodding in mm-hmm. studio. Mm-hmm. Guys, who wants to tell me what IPID stands for and wh- wh- where they feature in this thing? Well, Jean-Ray? Mm-hmm. IPID, is the, IPID is the Independent Police Investigative Directive, Directorate. So mm-hmm. it's the police's watchdog. IPID was established in April of 2012, and they are compelled to investigate certain instances of police misconduct. These are the more serious uh, allegations against police, such as the discharge of a police firearm, the assault and torture claims, and then also rape by or any allegation of rape against the police officer, whether on or off duty. So IPID is investigating their own people. They, they are completely separate, separate. and yeah. independent from the mm. police force. Yeah. They report directly on all matters that have been lodged with IPID when a complaint has been lodged. They report directly to the Office of the National Police Commissioner. Okay. And they have to give quarterly reports on all the matters. And there's a strict disciplinary procedure that is followed if one is a police officer and you are found uh, guilty in an IPID investigation. Unfortunately, what I have to advise the listeners is as soon as a matter is being dealt with by one of our courts, IPID will throw their hands up in the air because they are no longer, in terms of their mandate, then required to investigate that matter. So, yes, IPID is a wonderful establishment, but you will not get, in most instances, joy if you want to sue 
you will not get joy from IPID because as soon as they learn that the matter is being dealt with by the courts, they will then stop their investigation. One of the Legal Talk SA members, his name is Rachabo, he says, don't waste your time on IPID. Find yourself <laughs> an attorney and pursue a civil claim against the Minister of the Police. Tell the attorney to take your case on a contingency fee agreement. See an attorney as soon as possible, not later than six months from the date of arrest. Okay, let's talk about people are scared to go to an attorney because attorneys are so expensive. Even if I want to sue the police, I'm petrified because I walk through your door and you're going to charge me fees, <laughs> or aren't you? Um, okay, so, yeah, thank you for the question. Um, so how it works usually with matters such as these Minister of Police matters and um, general litigation matters in general is that legal practitioners will take them on on a contingency fee basis. Now, what that means is that um, us as legal practitioners will enter into an agreement with our clients, um, which agreement would state that um, we do not get paid for our services up until such a time as we have been successful with your claim. Okay, so I can come to you. I shouldn't be scared to knock on your door <laughs> no. and say to you right up front, a policeman assaulted me yesterday. Please, will you help me report it to the police? Take me to the district surgeon. Arrange everything for me. Is kind of you get involved from the beginning? Yeah, so how it would work is usually we would um, start with a consultation. Yeah. And um, the potential clients would come in and they'd explain the events that have taken place. Yeah. Then we, as the practitioners, would then assess the merits of the claim. Is there a prospect of success? Assuming that you get nothing, is it you don't charge me at all, Mahala? And if you, there's nothing, you if we get, get no nothing, fees. we get nothing. But and that's if you do succeed, <laughs> then you then you charge me either percentage or you charge me a, an increased fee. So, yeah. I think we've done contingency. We mm. understand the process. Yes. Yeah, lines you. Yeah. Okay, so lawyers like yourselves are taking on the police and other government departments, state departments, on a contingency basis, which is good to know. Yes. So the public can feel secure in your hands, truthfully. Yeah. They should, because even our previous uh, minister used the law firm, so <laughs> they, they must be good. <laughs> so, uh, Percy asks, how can I claim for an unlawful arrest? Because I don't have a lawyer that I'm paying... How much will it cost me? I think we've answered that. Mm. I've been in police cells for five days and I was released through the back door Mm. without being taken to court. They told me that uh, there was no DNA on me they had. They had no fingerprints. Uh, Therefore, he says, please discuss what lawyers charge or or should charge. Well, I think we've answered this question. But but it doesn't say what was he arrested for? What was the charge? I think he was up for robbery or something. Well, yeah, they, said that they said he had yeah. committed a robbery. Oh, okay. If I could just interject on that yeah. one. Um, the purpose of an arrest is always to secure a person's attendance at, at court. court. There is no other purpose for an arrest. It should never be used to intimidate or for any other means. Yeah. Therefore, the fact that if he is correct on his version that he was detained for five days and let out of the back door, they actually violated their own standing orders in not arresting him for the purpose of taking him to court so if you then you one can then completely with respect disregard what he was arrested for because the procedure they followed was incorrect they violated his constitutional rights Mm. in a gross manner and therefore his case would have extremely good merits and I'm sure I speak for my <laughs> colleagues here. We would be happy to take on that. Case. Oh, well. We, we <laughs> South Africa, we're coughing up billions every year, not millions, mm. billions, to settle claims of police misconduct and abuse, which is shocking. I don't know whether that's a political question, really. What are the main causes behind the scourge of police brutality that's gripping South Africa? What's going on out there? Gary, mm. it's, um, from, from my experience, it's, it's by and large... Um, a police force that isn't properly trained. Um, you know, the, the there's very few instances where we've actually, in court, you know, come across a police officer who knows under what circumstances he can actually arrest, um, you know, a, a citizen or a person. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the whole, I'd say, the whole training aspect is, has led to a complete breakdown and misunderstanding of the law. Um, so as to when one can arrest a person, 
when one can detain them. And uh, it's, it seems to be that the standard, by and large, is being lowered on a yearly basis. Mm. The requirements to get into the police force are becoming a lot easier than what they used to be. There, there was a joke years ago. It was, a, it was quite a corny joke. The guy said he got into the police and they asked him what, you know, what was the requirements. He said they asked him what was 10 and 10, and he said, my answer's 19. So his student said, but that's wrong. The answer's 20. He says, yeah, but I was the closest. Guys, <laughs> <laughs> that's a joke. It's a joke. It's a joke. <laughs> there you go. Okay, oh, guys, yeah. it's been really, really uh, interesting. We've, we, we get it from you. We understand what uh, you lawyers are about and that you're assisting the public. Are you making a living at the same time? But I think it's a great service, Lyons. Brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> taking these matters on on contingency. And, uh, um, yeah, is this a question that you want to take it? Yeah, Palissa, go on. Palissa, don't be shy, don't be shy. Um, there's a case where um, I was pursuing an RAF um, settlement and it was awarded one million. But mm. then they say they deposited the money into the lawyer's account. And when you contact the lawyer, the lawyer says that your balance is 200,000 rand. Sure. The mm. rest was used for legal fees. Is that legal? Are they supposed to uh, deposit it to you or to the lawyer? What? So, so if she has a he or she has a legal representative, then usually it's stated in the court order that um, the capital gets paid out to the attorneys. Um, there should, however, be a reconciliation process that is followed mm. by the attorneys um, towards the client. So it would depend on what sort of fee agreement she had. Let's assume it was a contingency fee agreement. They would have to draw up um, the attorney and client and and then determine, you know, what is the lesser between the 25% and the, the lawyers. The bottom fee. line is the lawyers get the money always so that they can take their cut and they pay the rest over. That's why there have been claims against some lawyers who have taken more than they should mm. or they've dipped their hands where they shouldn't dip. There's one important thing which I like very much. You guys, when you claim on behalf of someone who was wrongfully treated, you ask as part of your court order that the minister file a report with the registrar of the, and the judge's clerk that uh, the policeman who committed the act uh, faces disciplinary action. In other mm. words, not just a payment, there must be disciplinary, and that becomes part of a court order. I love that one. Yes. I've never seen that before. I've only seen it in your papers. Yes, I mean, it's, it's, it's some, some way of you know, trying to correct the, the wrongs. Um, uh, you know, wh what you would have seen by and large by the members of the public is that they feel frustrated in that, you know, compensation can never really take away the damage that has actually mm. been done to, to a person. Mm. And the, the ultimate sense of justice is that if they can see that there are steps being taken against police officers, be it, you know, a suspension or a firing or any kind of, um, of action, it instills a lot more confidence um, in our justice system and hence, you know, why we also try and go a little bit above and beyond the norm. Good. Your website, well, I mean, your firm is Hildenhuis Malachi. It's not Hildenhuis, Hildenhuis Malachi yes. in Pretoria and Santon. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, please pronounce your name properly. <laughs> and, uh, it's a bit French, so I'm a bit lost. So yeah. the pronunciation of my name is Anne-Lise. That's my full name. And yeah. then it's Nzi Sabira. Okay, she's yeah. a candidate lawyer and she's uh, <laughs> striving to become one of these fully fledged yes. lawyers. Good luck to you. <laughs> Thank you very Tim much. Tim Flock guys. is a very experienced lawyer on this and so is his associate. Call your name out. Jean Ray Pietin. Excellent. Jean -Ray Thank Pietin. you. Thank you, Jean Ray. Thank you, guys. Been very interesting. To our listeners who are listening live, please stick around. We have Kalyani Pillay. She's the CEO of the South African Banking Risk Information Center. She's this time of year, you've got to watch out. The criminals are out to get you. And then, yeah, Kalyani will explain how you protect yourself in regard to stolen and uh, fraudulent cards. We'll be right back. This is CliffCentral.com. Please note that the views expressed and the advice provided in this show are for general advice and entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated should be treated as a substitute for your own independent legal advice based on your own specific facts and objectives. Therefore, the presenter and CliffCentral.com accept no liability of any nature whatsoever, either expressed or implied. Law. Like you've never heard it before. The laws of life. 
with Gary Hertzberg on cliffcentral.com. I'm Gary Hertzberg and this is the Laws of Life on cliffcentral.com. Alongside me again today is Lionel Mark. Welcome, Lions. Thank you very much, Gary Dumela, to our podcasters and our guests. Uh, lovely, forever bright, and their energy is just amazing. The CEO <laughs> of Sabric is in the house, everybody. She is too. You know, Lions, I found it rather staggering because I was looking at something. I, I found it staggering to learn that South Africa, in South Africa, we have over 60 million debit cards and Whoa. nearly 8 million credit cards in circulation. That's Shut amazing. No, that's amazing. Where do people get the money? Well, I don't know where they... Yeah, we'll, we'll find out whether they steal <laughs> these cards or not. But, it, you know, all these credit cards obviously bring challenges and opportunities for criminals. Certainly. Sabric has reported that last year fraudulent spend with lost or stolen credit cards has increased by 37%. Wow. And this is a major concern to our banks and therefore, that is why we've invited once again Kalyani Pillay. She's the CEO of the South African Banking Risk Information Center, known as Sabric. She's going to tell us all about what's going on, uh, how Sabric is com- campaigning to keep the public informed. I know that you've told us a million times, but just one more time, a little bit on Sabric. Thank you, Gary, and, and hello, Lionel, as well. Hello, um, Sabric is the South African Banking Risk Information Center, uh, a non-profit organization established by the major banks in South Africa 15 years ago to assist uh, South African licensed banks fight organized crime. And I think one of the things I always say to people, Gary, is that we really should be very proud because we we a very unique organization where competitors come together to fight crime as a collaborate in a collaborative way, which is really great. Um, so yeah, we, we, we're very happy to have the opportunity to empower South Africans and particularly bank customers, uh, on how they can protect themselves, uh, and more particularly over this particular time of the year. Yeah, I guess right now, this is the time where we have to be extra cautious and extra careful with our credit and debit cards. How does it happen? What's going on out there with these cards? Well, well sure. You know, you, you spoke about uh, the number of cards that are out there. And, of course, you know, you don't get bank books anymore. So, of course, everybody has that has a bank account gets issued with a card. And many people get ha- apply for more than one. So, so there are lots of cards in circulation. But what we've been finding over recent times is that uh, it's not a new modus operandi, but certainly doing the rounds again and has been for the last couple of months is where uh, criminals are actually stealing bank customers' cards right in front of them without them even realizing it. And they're doing this at ATMs. So, of course, you know, when somebody goes to an ATM, they go there because they want to draw cash mm-hmm. or they want to do a transaction. So they don't go there just to fiddle around and, you know, and, and, and they are usually quite impatient or get a little bit annoyed if the ATM doesn't do what what they needed to do. So the example I'll give you is that what we're seeing is that people, you, you, a person, a bank customer goes up to the ATM, inserts their card, and then suddenly sees a screen that looks a little bit different from what they normally used to. And the reason for that is because the perpetrator goes to that ATM before when there's nobody at it, and they they have been setting the screen to cardless transactions. Can you do that? Yes. So oh. the banks have actually made it um, made various um, uh, platforms available and, and for for bank customers, all part of their service offerings to make it easier. And of course, if you do car- cardless transaction at an ATM, then it's a different process that you need to use. And of course, people can ask their banks to explain this. So you don't need to put a card into the ATM. Mm. But of course, you still need your PIN and that kind of thing. So anyway, um, what they do is they set it to the screen. So of course, the screen looks a little bit foreign because you've not seen this particular screen before. Mm. And you've now inserted your card. So what they do is that they've done that deliberately so that you almost need somebody to come and explain to you or help you with what's going on. Mm. And they very kindly, and I say that in inverted commas, come over to you and offers you that kind of assistance or says to you... How are these guys dressed? Who are they? So look, they they usually will not not make you feel suspicious, let me Mm. put it that way. You know, they're usually very nicely dressed. They Mm. probably speak well as uh, as well. Mm. So what they do is that when they come up to the ATM, now you've already put that card in, 
they we've seen it on footage. They so quickly press the cancel button. So they come up to you, right up to you. They press the cancel button, and your card ejects from the ATM. But you don't realize it because they ca- they close up to you. They're talking to you. They're telling you, you know, what needs to be done. And in the meantime, they've actually removed this card from the ATM. They either put another one in very quickly, or they put nothing in. Now they've got. They're in possession of your card, which, of course, they would put into their pockets very quickly. Mm. They then stand while standing alongside you and purporting to help you. They they tell you to write, go ahead now with your transaction. You can put your PIN number in. Now, it's four numbers, and, of course, they want to remember that number. So they're now in possession of the PIN number. They have the card in in their pocket. Of course, your transaction's not going to happen because your card's not in the machine. Um, and so then they, they would say something along the lines of, well, then you're going to have to go into the bank branch because, you know, something's wrong. And then, of course, you go away highly frustrated. You take this card out of the machine. You put it into your bag without looking at it. It'll usually be the same brand of that particular ATM. Or they'll say, look, the card's jammed. You've got to go and tell your bank. So you don't get a card. And what they do is that they go to the nearest ATM away. Obviously, they don't use the same ATM. <clears throat> they go to the nearest ATM to the one that they've just done this. And they need to draw that money very quickly before mm. you detect that you actually don't have your card with you. Mm. The other thing that we found that they've been doing, and this has been in very recent weeks, that they're taking this card and they're going into a store and they're buying things with it. Things that they can actually dispose of that they can resell. So it's part of the laundering of the funds, but obtaining it differently. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the advice to bank customers is absolutely under no circumstances should you take help from anybody at the ATM, irrespective of how well they speak, how well they dressed. If you're having a problem at the ATM, call the bank's call center number. It's usually on the ATM, but if it's not there, you have to have it on your contacts. It's a number that you can't do without. Mm. Uh, and for that matter, your your mobile service provider's call center number as well, you should keep with you. So call the bank, explain to them what's happened. Uh, alternatively, if your card is still, you're able to get your card out, cancel the transaction, go into a bank branch or go to another ATM, but do not under any circumstances take help from anybody. You know, Kalyani, what you're saying is so obvious, and yet, notwithstanding it, people are making thousands. the same... Thousands. Thousands of thousands. people. Yeah. I know Pelissa was like shuddering here as you were talking. Yes. Because I guess it could happen that there's a person standing behind you, you're a bit stuck, yeah. and they say, no, 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 just push this button. Yes. Meantime, he's pushing the cancel Absolutely. button to hop your card. He's, I, I, he's manipulating, uh, he or she is manipulating you emotionally. It's part mm. of the social engineering. They know how you're going to respond. Mm. They know you're going to be grateful yeah. to somebody who's offering you help, that you think that this is this kind person helping you get along with what you need to do. Yeah, sometimes you're standing in a long line as well. Absolutely, and you're frustrated. You want to get done. Eventually you get to the front, and then this thing doesn't work. So you look to the guy behind you to help. Yeah. Lines, uh, I mean, I think we know better, but there are a lot of people that just don't. And the the spur of the moment, Mm. that emotional decision, Mm. is what costs people their money. Yeah. I read something, I think it's off your website. They say that people use the, the crooks, use those cards that they steal to uh, buy stuff at liquor stores, service stations, mm-hmm. toll plazas, and grocery stores. Absolutely. Those are the main ones. That so with the debit cards, that's what yeah. actually happens. With credit cards, we're finding sort of similar spend, but also some additional ones. People are buying air tickets. They're buying uh, booking and paying for holiday accommodation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes they do that because they can rent it on to somebody else and get some money out of it, you know, that kind of thing. So we're we, we seeing all kinds of spend, but a lot of things around, if you see liquor stores and, and, and uh, grocery stores, they can buy goods and they can actually sell it off, yeah, you know. Sure. So yeah. uh, obviously with tolls and things they would pay, and those are smaller amounts, they just pay for it and get away with it, yeah. Actually, it's also happening at the... Uh, uh, what you call this filling stations yes. where people want to actually fill for you That's you give them cash they <coughs> actually swipe it for you so those are some of the um it's part know. of the laundering explain uh, that of the funds. i'm not quite with you so you get to the filling station yeah. a guy would approach you to say how much are you filling with uh, yeah. you go oh no i want to get petrol for 300 rand he's yeah. like no it's fine i'll pay it for you give me the cash I'll, I'll use my card you <coughs> give me the cash so that's so, so, so they, they obviously in those instances would 
we would make you know assume that they are part of the of the syndicate um and if they have um, a fake or a counterfeit card with them and already have the pin number mm-hmm. at the end of the day they employ the the owner of the service station will get payment and is not necessarily a part of this mm. <coughs> will get the payment um you, with a fraudulent card oh, I see. and then yeah. and then yeah. the, per, the 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 person who served you has got the cash i would assume that in that instance they're really mm. a part of of all of, of the syndicate that's actually doing this i guess uh, i mean i know that on your website you you very clearly say please check your bank balance and your and your statement all the time yeah. all the time and you know gary i think the important thing is that we we also encourage bank customers to make sure that they get receive sms notifications for any transaction that occurs on their account whether it's a transfer interbank mm. transfer or whether it's a payment yes. and it's part of wanting to minimize and the, the the risk that you face and mitigate those those losses by by um if you receive a notification of an unauthorized payment that's gone off, you can contact your bank immediately to ensure that there's no further transactions that take place. So it's very important to get that. But to look at that bank statement, don't even wait for it once a month. I don't even know if banks post it to people anymore. No, it's mostly but, online. You know, yeah. online. Yeah. So go on to again. Make sure that the computer you use is not one in a in a internet cafe or in a place that you don't know the actual machine. Yes. Make sure that when you're logging onto your bank's website, you type in www. And a, a, another important thing that people don't realize uh, that we're actually advising, when you're going to your bank, say if you're using your even your own device that mm. you know, mm. don't just go to the drop down or to your favorites or to the previous ones and click on that. Mm. Get into the habit of typing in the URL, in the address bar. Every single time that you need to go in, into your bank account, <laughs> type the www. Not smiling because he doesn't do that. Don't go and do the, the, the click on, on, on you know, um, the previous things. Just don't. In the, just we have a minute or so left, Kalyani. What's really important is, um, what was it I wanted to ask you? Um, yeah, if you don't report your lost card very very quickly, you could be liable uh, to the banks. Well, you well, well look. The, 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 you, you should. The, the, uh, if you don't report it quick enough, mm. there's the opportunity of the criminal actually doing more transactions mm. and getting away with it. Uh, the bank would require you to report it as soon as possible. Mm. Uh, but for every single incident and for every single unauthorized uh, amount that's taken out of your account or payment that's made. Uh, using your card, the bank will investigate every single one individually. Mm. Um, if you used any particular device to do your banking or your transaction, the banks will call for those devices as well so that they can perform diagnostics against it to see whether you've been responding to phishing mails or, you know, not having malware on your device or whatever. Mm. So I think really important for us to start being really serious about this, mm-hmm. you know, taking it seriously and understanding that we are vulnerable as bank customers. And the criminals know that. They know that banks would look after themselves and look after their systems and are constantly at it. But they know that you and I as individuals may not necessarily be taking the same kind of precautions, which creates the opportunity for them. Good. Yeah. It's uh, Sabric warns that uh, beware a skellum is lurking this Christmas season. So please uh, take every precaution. Absolutely. Yeah. Sabric is not just a pretty face. Sabric does a lot of good work, and you're around the country constantly telling people how to be careful. And we appreciate what you're doing because there'd be more victims if it wasn't for someone like yourself. Many Thank thanks you. to you for that. Thanks so much, Gary. And we hope yeah. to see you again next week. Yes, absolutely. Great. It's been lovely. Kalyani Pillay, many thanks for this. Law, like you've never heard it before. The Laws of Life with Gary Hertzberg on cliffcentral.com. Cliffcentral.com.